Hi, this is John Sprunk. You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Our guest today is an author of epic fantasy, a watcher of professional football, and a collector of medieval weaponry. His first epic fantasy series debuted in 2010 with the release of Shadow's Sun from Pyre Books. And not only did Shadow's Sun receive rave reviews, but it was also nominated for a David Gamel Award and a Compton Crook Award. The Shadow Saga series continued with two more installments, including Shadow's Lore and the concluding volume Shadow's Master. But why stop with just one epic fantasy series, right? In March of 2014, our guest kicked off a new series, effectually known as the Book of the Black Earth, with book one titled Blood and Iron, a tale of magic and adventure built as sword and sorcery meets Spartacus. Book two in the series, Storm and Steel, dropped this past June and continues the story of Horus and his battle against evil forces from an unseen world. In addition to novels, our guest has also had numerous short stories published in various anthologies and is an active member of the Pen Writers Writing Group, a nonprofit organization assisting authors of all skill levels to improve and succeed in their craft. Skyping in all the way from central Pennsylvania, John Sprunk, welcome to the show. Not a problem, I appreciate doing it. For listeners who aren't familiar with the series, go ahead and tell us just a bit about the Book of the Black Earth series and what readers can expect from the newest title in the series. Okay, no problem. You call it epic fantasy, and I kind of think it is too, but I still get the sword and sorcery label, probably because the Shadow series was mostly sword and sorcery. Anyway, uh, it's a story of uh, a man who has lost his family in a tragic accident goes out on uh, to join a great crusade against the infidel in the east and ends up shipwrecked on their shore and captured by uh, the enemy nation and enslaved. And this other nation, the society is built around sorcery. If you possess the ability to use sorcery, you are automatically like a noble in their, in their society, in their caste system. So Horus, who is a simple carpenter um, slash soldier, is captured and finds out not too soon afterwards he has an unexpected gift for sorcery. And so, of course, these people who captured him, the, uh, the Empire, has a situation. You know, how do they have a slave who is also, in their eyes, blessed by the gods? So they free him. They give him, you know, some leeway to move around their society. He finds himself in the middle of a number of clashes, one of which is there's a, a brewing slave rebellion. And uh, the people of this empire are very brutal, and when they put it down, and he, because he was a captive, and he is a man of the people, finds himself wanting to side with the slaves. But he is a person of um, some importance now, so he's caught between the people at the bottom and the top of the society. And you know, where does he find his place? And of course, with the magic, there's a whole thing brewing of. There are many different uh, antagonists here, different villains at different levels. There are um, a number of different religious cults that are trying to control the, the empire and, and Horus. There is the queen who freed him from slavery, who uh, has taken interest in him. And she's also a very powerful sorceress. And she wants him his help to put the slave rebellion down. And the slaves want his help to free them. So he's caught in a whole bunch of different conflicts at one time and as a stranger in a strange land. So that's pretty much the first book in a nutshell is how does he navigate all these political 
and personal um, murky waters to find what he's supposed to do in, in this place. Yeah, that sounds great. That definitely sounds like a, a heavy sword and sorcery uh, influence in your tale. You've had some sword and sorcery influences in your writing, correct? Oh, I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't do it on purpose, but I've been put, I guess maybe five or so years ago, there started to be a wave of sword sorcery coming back in the mainstream of fantasy. And the Shadow Saga was often called by people part of that wave, like the British invasion of metal, you know, about years back. So... <laughs> Um, you know, I'm not the pioneer by any means, but I was part of that wave, I guess you'd say. So, you know, whatever I write, I think some people are going to want to call it sword and sorcery regardless, which is fine by me because I think the subgenres are so vague that one book can be considered several of them probably. So we've had uh, several people on the show and we've asked about Grimdark as a label or a subgenre. Has that label been applied to your writing at all so far or is it mostly epic fantasy or sword and sorcery yeah i've heard it a couple times mentioned but i'm not i don't know like i said i'm not a pioneer of any subgenre or sub subgenre so you know i, I don't get it the, the label totally all the time but I, i've heard it mentioned once in a while and again with grimdark you know dark fantasy grim you know there's so many sub subgenres of fantasy that you know it could become what flavor tea do you like and you know what differentiates something from something else yeah are you comfortable with those subgenres being applied to your writing some authors aren't so cool with so many subgenres being applied and prefer it just be considered literature but are you okay with classifications for the stuff that you write oh totally i, I really i i don't have a uh uh, an elitist perspective where I have to be considered just literature, you know. <laughs> you know, some authors famously won't even consider their work fancy or science fiction. There's there's literature writers. No, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> if you like grimdark, if you want to call my stuff grimdark so you'll like it, wonderful. Please do. I have no problem <laughs> and with hopefully, that. Hopefully, hopefully buy it. Yeah. If you right. if you hate grimdark, then my stuff is nothing like it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good attitude. So if you love it, buy it. If you hate it, buy it. Buy it. Buy it. <laughs> yeah. Just, there you go. That's the answer we want to have. You've mentioned before, when you were plotting the series for the Book of the Black Earth, that you uh, utilize the snowflake method. Uh, Philip and I are, have a little bit of knowledge with that. For folks who maybe aren't, aren't familiar with that, tell us a little bit about that snowflake method that you applied and maybe how it differs with the way that you wrote uh, the Shadow Saga series. Oh, sure. No problem. Um, the snowflake method, um, I was doing some research on a, a panel I was giving at a Penrose convention about plotting, and I was researching, and I came across this method. It pretty much is you start with a sentence that describes the book you want to write, just this one sentence, and then you expand that into a paragraph, and then into a full page, and you do the same thing with the characters. You have a one-sentence description of the character, and you keep expanding these, these descriptions. Over time, all these descriptions, as you expand them bigger and bigger, become an outline or a synopsis. Um, so I did this with the Book of Black Earth. Um, just because I wanted to try it out. And usually when I plot a book from scratch, it takes me two to three months. And this method was like two weeks. So I was really excited about how fast it worked for me. The problem was I started writing from this outline and I got maybe about 50 to 100 pages in and decided this wasn't the story I wanted to tell. So I scrapped the entire thing, started over again. <laughs> oh, so wow. it, it, while it was an interesting exercise in plotting, because I am interested in the nuts and bolts of writing as much as you know the art of it, it didn't become something I added permanently to my repertoire. Um, differently, it's just simply said, you, you start small and the, the method makes you branch out and keep expanding your, your ideas for the book. Whereas I'm more of a, this is the opening situation, 
where does the character logically and emotionally go from there step by step until I get to, you know, a climax, whether I have that predisposed or whether I discover it in a way. It just feels more organic to me. But again, I'm, everybody's different with that. So it was more of an exercise, I think, than anything else in the end. Yeah, I think everybody kind of uh, goes through that as writers where uh, one, one big thing I've noticed with beginning fantasy writers in particular is that they do shitloads of world building and it's and then they do so much world building that they never get around to actually writing anything and uh <laughs> i've seen that happen a lot um and sometimes it's good to just uh, write like an opening line or something and then just go from there uh, ha- that's what you usually do now you just kind of uh a mixture of plotting and and uh pantsing or plantsing as they call it <laughs> well i do an intense amount of plot i said two to three months to plot a novel out so i do have the entire story there now the world building touches on like research and i don't do a whole lot of research at that stage as far as just like the setting for the book of black earth you know i did do a little thought about the magic system i wanted to use um what kind of uh setting this would be you know what kind of society it might be so i probably had at least a few pages on each of those subjects uh to start off with but i let it be fluid you know if i'm writing and a situation comes up in the story that's different than my outline or my setting notes you know but it sounds really good i go with it i let it go i let it play out for a while to see where it's going to take me because sometimes you find your best most exciting details are just they come to you organically. You, know, you can't predict them, so that's fine. I'm not rigid about that, but you know, I do a decent amount of preparation before I start writing. Yeah, that sounds like a heavy amount of preparation for plotting for two to three months before you even dive in to start writing the book. Yeah, when I first started writing, I was a total pantser. You know, I just had a, a char- one, one character and an opening line, and I would just go. The problem is either I could never finish those books, I get to a certain point, it would bog down because I would run out of you know, easy ideas about where to go with it, or I would lose interest, or I'd finish the book, but it would be such a chaotic mess you know, all over the place that it would take me a year or two just to revise it into <laughs> something you know, intelligent at all. So I figured, well, I'd rather spend two to three months up front getting a basic story, you know, that, that I can sink my teeth into rather than spending all that time in the back end erasing most of what I've written and rewriting anyway. So it just seems to me to be more efficient and it gives me a, a level of control with the writing. And I kind of know where I'm going to go with each scene before I write it. So I, I, you know, I've already pre-discovered the landscape, you know, there's already been advanced scouts going out. I'm, I'm mostly just following up and, you know, and taking you know, notes on the way now. And especially having an epic fantasy trilogy with Pyre, who expects a book book number three to come, I suppose it's a best use of your time to uh, plot as effectively as possible so that uh, no time is wasted, I suppose. That's part of it, too. Although this year, this third book has been, the book hasn't been a super mess, but the, the, the snowflake wasn't the, the best um, method to start with. But um, I started a new job this year, and... Uh, it took a whole lot of my time. Before this year, I was a full-time writer, which was really nice having all that time, you know, on my to, to write and such. But uh, adding a job takes a lot of my free time away. <laughs> so this has been a really, well, 2015 has been a really slow year as far as writing. So I'm just now getting back on the ball and getting some production under my belt every day. So speaking of um, making a living, uh, one thing I've noticed 
from reading about your stories and then and then reading some of Blood and Iron. I noticed assassins and mercenaries and gladiators and soldiers, uh, these kind of characters appear in a lot of your stories. What about characters that make a living killing people uh, appeals to you as a writer? Well, um, that's a question on many different levels. <laughs> I'll need to really go to my psyche about it. Uh, I don't think it's wish fulfillment. I don't go around <laughs> wanting to kill people constantly. <laughs> but it's crossed my mind now and again. Um, I don't know. I think it's more of a reaction. You know, when I was growing up and reading fantasy in the late 70s, early 80s, of course, there was my you know favorite, like Robert E. Howard with Conan. You know, that was a big influence. Uh, Fatford and the Grey Mouser. These were people that more often than not were on the outskirts of society. They, they found themselves in making a living, often in a dirty way. So that was a response to the knights, you know, the King Arthur type tales, you know, the knights and the kings, which was very clean fantasy. You know, everything was, you know, very regal and shiny. So I think I just gravitated more towards the, the gritty type sort of tales and, and the characters. They were more interesting to me. I mean, um, in Shadow Sun, we do get some uh, glimpses into the um, uh, the court life of of Camp's city, and of course, in Blood and Iron, Horus is um, spent a lot of time in the court of the queen. So we, I, I do want to touch on those parts of society, but I'm always drawn back into the gutters, you know, where, where the bloody work is done, because I think that in fantasy, especially because we deal with a lot of life and death scenarios more than other genres might, it could really be easy to be flippant about it and be like, oh yes, I'm going to have my character duel 12 guys in one day. He kills them all and he goes have some tea and, you know, and, and is not affected by this. And it it, it, it it can become cavalier in a way, you know, how, like the uh, Schwarzenegger, you know, movies of the 80s, you know, how, how many people can he kill in one movie? It could become <laughs> cavalier about it. And I, I kind of always want to push back against that. You know, I want my characters when they do these bloody things to be affected in some way, even if they're callous about it. That says something about them. It should mean something. It shouldn't be the writer being lazy, saying, well, I don't want to deal with the emotions of killing. So I'm just going to skip it. So that's really where I try to come from with these kind of characters. Well, I saw that you mentioned in an interview that Glenn Cook was a big influence. And I think most of our listeners know who Glenn Cook is, but some some might not. Would you say he's a he was a pretty big influence on your uh, developing these kind of grittier style of stories? Massive. Um, until I read The Black Company, probably sometime in high school, if I remember correctly, up until then, I was probably mostly a Robert E. Howard clone writer. You know, I was actually <laughs> writing stories that I thought would fit into his world uh, of Conan and such. And, uh, that was how I cut my teeth writing um, and obviously got nowhere in publishing doing that. And then I read The Black Company and it, it totally changed the game for me. It, it totally took me out of a simplistic sword and sorcery, which I still love to read, nothing wrong with it, but it made it all more personal. I think the characters of The Black Company really were, because they're all soldiers, mercenaries, but it's a personal story, you know, about their relationships and how they defend each other and what they're willing to do for each other. And um, it, it just struck me as such a landmark piece of fi uh, fancy fiction that I, uh, I I clung to it. I've read it several times. And it's like it's something I go back to every few years to remind myself of what I love about it. So, you know, I'm not sure how much of it, uh, you know, shows up in my writing. But that's something a reader has to tell you. But as far as in my mind when I'm writing... I'd love to inhabit that same space as Glenn. I mean, I would, you know, be honored to be mentioned in the same sentence with him. Well, Glenn Cook and John Sprunk, 
So now you've been <laughs> mentioning. Yeah, I could die now. Happy, thank you. So you are hooked up with Pyre Books. Um, I think you're the first official Pyre author that we've had on the show. Um, I believe Joe Abercrombie is still with Pyre in some regards. He's coming on the show next week. Uh, um, so yeah, his first lawsuit. I think that they still publish that in the United States. So he'll always <laughs> probably be tied to them in yeah. some way because that will never go out of print. <laughs> we often talk about authors' paths to publication on the show. Tell us how you got hooked up with Pyre. Uh, Lou loves the story. Lou Anders, who was the uh, the former uh, editor-in-chief of Pyre, he sort of kicked it off the ground probably, what was it, about seven years ago or so. He always told me, John, don't ever tell a story in public. So, of course, I tell whenever I'm asked. <laughs> um, I had just read the first book of Abercrombie Joe's, you know, his uh, first law series, and uh, I loved it, obviously. It's a great series. And um, I saw in the back, you know, th- at this point, I was... Um, had been writing for 20 years. I had written several books, had submitted them over and over to everybody who would, had a, an address in publishing or agency, had a mountain of rejections, and was getting really burnt out. And just before this, maybe a month before this whole episode, I had finished Shadow Sun and mailed it out to a few agents. And I won't mention the person's name, but I had one agent that w- halfway through reading Shadow Sun emailed me and, and just raved about how much they loved it. And it was one of the best books that ever written, you know, ever they'd ever read, blah, blah, blah. I've got a big future, you know, and to a person who'd spent almost 20 years, you know, trying to break in, this was such an awesome email to get. I was so ecstatic. And then maybe a week later, this person emailed me, the agent emailed me back saying, yeah, I finished the book. It didn't quite do it for me. I, I'm going to pass. <laughs> oh, wow. So having got that close to the brass ring I've been trying for for so long, I I was that was that was crushing, you know. I, I, I at that point I was already starting to think that wouldn't happen for me anyway, and that was like the last nail in the coffin. I actually told my wife that day that I think I was going to stop submitting professionally and just write for the fun of it, you know, and you know live a normal life as far as that goes. But she really urged me to give it a few more tries, not to give up. And so like I said I read Joe's book, and in the back there's an acknowledgement section, and he mentions Lou Andrews, his uh, American publisher. Uh, editor. And I thought, you know, it's a great book. So I emailed Lou at Pyre uh, on a lark, just saying, hey, I read this book and uh, I loved it. it it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant. And by the way, I write fantasy and I have something that I think is in a similar vein, uh, if you will. You know, if you want to take a look, give me, give me a call or whatever. Give me an email. And I just emailed it off thinking, you know, nothing. I, I'd emailed so many people over the years, publishers, yeah. agents. I thought, What's one more rejection, right? No big deal. Well, imagine my surprise when maybe a day later, I think it was the same day maybe even, Lou emailed me back saying, John, I spend every day reading manuscripts. And this is the one day in the last how many years when my desk is completely clear. I have nothing to read. If you email this manuscript to me right now, I will read it. So, of course, I emailed him the manuscript right away. But even then, because I just had that big rejection the month before, I thought he's going to read it, start to like it, and then by the end, say, no, thank you. Well, a few days later, he, he gets back to me and says he wants to publish it. And I was shocked, uh, of course. I was smart, though. I told him, you know, uh, he gave me a, a monetary figure for the advance, and I was smart. I said, I have to get an agent first and negotiate this, so he was cool with that. And then I, he actually gave me the, the name of my who became my agent, and I called them, and they took me on, and then they hammered out the contract, and the rest is history. But it was pretty much after having a really bad luck for two decades, I got really, really lucky on one day. 
That's awesome because like there are probably so many stories of people that they're just about to give up and then and then they do give up. But, you know, you you submitted that one last time and that may, that may have been the last time you ever submitted something. Maybe yeah. seriously, yeah. But Lou said don't tell it because he just fears he's going to have 100,000 fancy authors <laughs> emailing him their manuscripts right, right away, <laughs> which didn't happen. But I think now Pyre is partially open to unagent submissions. I forget. They kind of opened the door a little bit um, not long after that for people to, to mail stuff in. But don't quote me anymore. It's been a few years since I had to submit that way. Pen Writers is uh, something that you are heavily involved in. That's a writer's group based in Pennsylvania. Tell us a little bit about your involvement with that organization and maybe how writer's group has helped you with uh, your writing. It's probably been about 10 years when I joined, and uh, I don't know how I hooked up with them. I think I was disappointed by writing where I, I felt I was getting better, but I didn't know what to do with it anymore because, you know, up till then I've been totally doing it on my own and it, it's a very lonely profession and there's not a lot of guidance. You can get magazines and stuff about it, but it doesn't give you a whole lot of um, good detail. So probably online or something, I found the name of this organization, Pen Writer, which is mostly bits of Pennsylvania, but they have writers from all across the country, even other, either other countries um, involved. And I went to their convention, which was locally here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, um, I was amazed. It was my first conference for writing I've ever been to, and I didn't know what to expect. And uh, it, was, it was awesome just to see hundreds of fellow writers, most of which were unpublished like I was, most of which had a book or three or ten that they were trying to get published. And um, just the camaraderie of, of mingling with them, talking to them, validated so much about the process to me that you know i hadn't had to that point you know i felt like i wasn't just a lone freak in his den you know <laughs> typing away like a like a mad scientist you know part of a community which was nice and some of those friendships you know i, I started 10 years ago I, I still hold very dear today including i met maria um snyder there the the fantasy author um bestseller uh, that first year and uh, she took me under her wing a little bit she actually blurbed shadow sun and uh she's still a very good friend today as far as what it did for me, not just to come, the, the community was very important. That was a great thing, first of all. And I still go to their, their conference every year, every year since, pretty much. Um, and now I present, you know, lectures and workshops there as well, which is nice. But um, they also had a lot about the business side of writing. Um, if you're a sports fan, you always hear, you know, on the news about, you know, there's, there's the sport and then there's the business side of the sport, which is totally different. And that's how writing is, too. You know, it's an art form and it's creative, but if you want to be professionally, you know, commercially published, if that's all business and you can be the best writer and have a poor business approach or a mediocre writer with a great business approach either way. But like, I didn't know how to write a proper cover letter to a submission. I didn't know how to find an agent besides just looking on the internet or whatever. I didn't know how to, um, you know, how to see the contract, you know, what, what, what the parts of it were, what was the important rights I wanted to keep for myself. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And uh, this conference really had a lot of great stuff where I could just like absorb all this wisdom from other writers, you know, what they'd been through. And also it's great because there's unpublished, there are people that are published in small presses and big presses, you know, big publishers. It's a whole spectrum of writers. So, you know, when you're a beginner, you can go in and learn from the other beginners and the intermediates. And as your career takes off, there's always people 
that are more experienced than you are there. So I, I can always go back year after year, no matter what stage of my career I'm at, and meet people that have done it and know what's next for me. So that's really been valuable to me. Have you been in a situation yet where you've taken a uh, bird lane of a rider and uh, <laughs> take, taken them under your wing? Yeah, in the last couple of years, you know, since the, the Shadow series has been out and completed, especially, I've noticed, you know, I have younger or less experienced riders coming to me more and more often, you know, asking me, you know, in the same way that I, I go to like a Jonathan Mayberry or a Maria Snyder and I, I, I go to them with questions and I have people now are coming to me, you know, the beginners. <laughs> and it's nice. Um, I actually was a, a writing mentor at Seton Hill University for a couple of years um, with the same kind of thing. You know, I would go, you know, there and meet with their um, graduate student, creative writing uh, students, and I would mentor them. I'd read their stuff, critique it, get back to them, you know, give them advice about careers and agents. And then I find, you know, that, that giving back uh, is is a big part of being, you know, uh, in any profession, but especially something like writing, which can be very lonely and very isolating in some ways. As far as the uh, writing group goes, would you suggest anybody in their, at any stage in their writing career get, get involved with something like a writing group to help improve their craft? Definitely. Like I said, it, it's going to help the person who's just starting the journey get an idea of what's ahead. And also, we all say the same thing every year after year at these conferences, is that whenever you come away so energized and so inspired to write, that for like the next few weeks... All you want to do is work on your book, you know, your books, because, you know, you've been talking writing all, all weekend. You've met writers that are, you know, multi-published and bestsellers, and you come away thinking, this is now attainable, where I think if, before I joined, you know, for 10 years, you know, I was writing and submitting on my own. It can really start to feel dark, like, you know, the world's against you. <laughs> And, you know, this is an unattainable dream that only very special people get published. And you have to go out and meet people in large groups and say, no, no, everyday people get published. You know, it does happen. It's hard as hell. And uh, but it happens. And, you know, it helps keep you going, I think. And another issue that we usually uh, discuss with authors, too, is marketing and promotion. As far as your uh, methodology and your approach to marketing, how do you tackle the, the beast that is getting your name out there? <laughs> That's interesting. I, I think I'm sort of a crossover generation. I, I still have one foot in the old school idea, which is I'm the writer. I write it, I send it to the publisher, and they handle everything from there on out, from publishing it to marketing it, and they leave me alone. <laughs> My other foot is in you know the newer generation, which is social media, which is self-promotion, which is, you know, you know, no one's going to do it better than yourself, so get out there. You know, so I, I go through spurts where, you know, I don't want to worry about it because I figure that's not my job anymore. Be, the writers are, uh, sorry, writer, readers are supposed to be searching out people like me. You know, if you love fantasy like I do, you should be like me. You should be in the bookstores. You should be online finding the new writers. What are they doing? Picking up their books, trying them out. That seems to be you know, the reader's job and the publisher's job is to make it available and to advertise it at least a little bit. But then I go through a spurt like, oh, my God, no, no, no. I have to be out there because, you know, you see other authors or they're doing all kinds of promotional things and they're on Goodreads all the time and they're on Twitter constantly. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm falling behind the curve, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to be satisfied. So I'm more of a middle of the road kind of guy. And I will, I will promote, you know, a little bit. 
but I never want my Facebook or my Twitter feeds to become, you know, a Kardashians type thing where it's me, 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 look what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Screw that. You know, I'm not that self-involved really. So, you know, it, it's a little bit of each. Um, in this century, obviously, publishers are not advertising, marketing the way they did in, you know, in, in, in eras gone by. That's just uh, a fact of the money isn't as there as much as it used to be, maybe, or maybe they found out that there's a ceiling on how much they can, you know, hype a book before it doesn't help anymore. So authors have taken upon themselves to really, you know, beat their own drum. It's, it's difficult because I'm not a great self-promoter. You know, I can put the face on at a convention or, or a conference, you know, and, you know, and, and be confident about my work, but I'm still mostly an introvert who just wants to produce the work and be loved by the world, you know, automatically. <laughs> well, I think, I think writers tend to be that way. You know, I, I've been that way for a long time also. But I think as far as marketing, uh, one, one, one person said, you know, just being present uh, sometimes is, is marketing in a way. And uh, for me, anyway, as a starting writer, Sometimes I don't have anything to say. So when you're sitting there on Twitter and you're thinking, what's something witty I can say? And then, <laughs> and what hashtag can I use to, to and then, uh, and then, uh, maximize my, uh, you know, I have to, I have to schedule it at the certain time of day. So, you know, I, I think that's yeah, what, yeah. I think that's what people run into a lot with, uh, where they self promote because they love talking about writing and, uh, they're proud of their work or whatever. So I think that's, that's a constant struggle for a lot of people is that they don't like to self-promote, but they don't really have anything else to talk about sometimes. Cause that's all they're doing. Like, right. like there's days where that's all I do is write. And then I think, you know, well, I could talk about the tacos I ate or I can <laughs> talk about writing. So. Uh, well, some people are just, naturally good self they're good salespeople you know they're good self promoters that's just a natural gift they have and i've seen that in, in, in other authors that i've met and, and talked to and sometimes with clever witty self promotion on social media they can overperform they can sell more and reach more people than they would have otherwise i'm not one of them because I, I can go to a con- convention like, like dragon con which i love dragon con i go there and I, I can go there in glad hand and you know and meet people and promote myself to some degree, but it's not natural to me. And I don't think hopefully it'll come off as as being you know a show or something. But you know I I've been witness to people that are just naturally wonderful salespeople, and it's kind of fun to watch you know them just take over a crowd, man, and the whole crowd eats out of their hand. And it's like wow, if I could do that, you know, <laughs> I'd have twice the sale, blah blah blah. But then yeah, you gotta be yourself. <laughs> Yeah, some folks it's just not as natural to it, just it is to not be for me, but I try. Charismatic and charming and brilliant. Yeah, I have a and... charisma of two or three. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could it could have something to do with um, your collection of medieval weaponry. That's a horrible. That's a horrible segue, but um, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, it's funny. I put that in my bio because you know you read author bios and there's almost always one like interesting quirky detail. 
Mm-hmm. So I had to rack my brain for something interesting <laughs> about my life. I'm like, oh, I have a few swords. So put that down, you know. <laughs> it's it's don't overblow it. It's maybe six swords, um, <laughs> but I bought most of them online. The only really cool one I have is I'm not sure where it came from. It's been my family for a long time. It's a Civil War era French artillery officer's saber, um, nice. and it's authentic. I mean, it's from the Civil War. And I'm not sure who got it, but my it got passed down to me. And uh, so that's the one cool piece of my collection. I'm always tempted to pawn or something, but I never do. Yeah, we don't we don't want to see you on Pawn Stars or something. Like, hey, How much uh, is this worth? $14. <laughs> Screw you. Well, now I wish I had more swords in my personal collection. So They are fun mm-hmm. to hold, but you know, once you have a kid, you really can't display them too much. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's, they, they collect us in the corner. Well, I've, li- I've lived in Japan for a while now, and I'm always tempted to – they have these uh, people that make – kind of authentic style samurai swords and they're still like a profession like a blacksmith that just makes mm-hmm. swords and i'm always thinking i need to, i need to get like a hanzo hattori sword or like a, <laughs> from kill bill or whatever but i think it's yeah it's incredibly interesting i'd like now if i had the free time like i found if i was a millionaire and had nothing else to do when I wasn't writing, I'd love to learn how to blacksmith a sword. That'd be awesome. But then again, it's a lot of time and effort, and I'm pretty lazy, so. <laughs> Can't just dive into blacksmithing. If I was a blacksmith, then I'd have more to talk about on Twitter, I think. I could, hey, I'm <laughs> blacksmithing a fucking sword, guys. <laughs> I want to, you know, what do they call it uh, when you dip it in the, in the oil or the water? They call that, um, I forget, but you, you could use blood, and there you go. Instant Twitter viral. Yeah. <laughs> I dip my swords in unicorn blood <laughs> to seal in the magic. That's how it works. Uh, Shadow Saga. Any uh, future volumes planned in that series? I get asked that once in a while by readers or um, on a podcast like this, which is always uh, very, uh, uh, very honoring. Um, not really. I have an idea for another book. But the thing is, it's hard to go back to something you've written before and reopen it because I've got a dozen novels in my head i want to write like right now mm-hmm. so i'd have to put those all on you know i, I can't write them now i'm doing a new the black earth series i want to finish that obviously first if i've got like i said half a dozen things i want to write next at least so what i've been i pushed those future books off now to finish this series now do i want to go back to shadows saga again reopen that again what if that's a three book series again now i'm pushing back my my you know my ideas three to five years more you know <laughs> so it's part of it is time and also to be to be blunt i love this that series but it's it's not a bestseller where are there enough fans to warrant going back and you know and doing a new book so i have an idea about maybe came has a daughter who is growing up with some mysterious abilities she can't explain. Uh, maybe. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> so there is an inkling in there. But I'll tell you, I've, I haven't started it really. And who knows if I ever will. You know, if, if I get, you know, a Kickstarter campaign, I can get 50K for it. Sure. I'll, I'll write it tomorrow <laughs> if you want. <laughs> Give me $50,000. I will write the next I'm book. I'm tempted, but I, I, I'm sure I would get like $25 total. <laughs> and it would totally reaffirm my low expectations for myself. So I won't do that. Well, the Shadow Saga did get uh, a unique treatment that not a lot of authors get, and you got the graphic audio treatment, which is uh, like an enhanced audiobook. Um, well, first of all, they are a great company. I, I don't have many audiobooks, you know, but you know, I grew up with it. You know, they have one person who just reads the book, you know, into the mm-hmm. microphone, and it's okay. You know, it, it gets the job done. 
But graphic audio is a whole different thing. They have a cast of voice actors for every project. They add music, sound effects. It really is like listening to one of those old-time radio shows, a complete play or a movie. And, and, uh, and it's like, a, you know, like an eight-CD collection for each book. So these are not short. These are, you know, co- this is a time commitment. So I, I love how they do their books. So I'm so honored to be part of their thing. They, re- they write their screenplay, you know, based on your book. And it's mostly, you know, from the book. But they have to adapt a little bit for a different medium. Mm-hmm. And my involvement pretty much is saying, go ahead and do that. You have my permission. <laughs> and then usually for each book, um, one of their um, you know, producers will give me a call and just want me to p- pronounce some of the, usually it's like the names, you know, character mm-hmm. names, place names. Because fantasy, some of these names can get a little esoteric. <laughs> so they'll be like, how do you pronounce Kame? How do you pronounce, you know, the, the, the name of the city he's in? Just so they can say it correctly, you know. But I often tell them it's fantasy, you know. There is no right or wrong way to say any of this stuff. How I say the character's name might not be how the reader, and I've had that happen where a reader would be like, you know, or an interviewer would say, I heard you say that the name is Kame. I always thought it was Kayim. And I'm like, oh, okay, if it's Kayim to you, it's fine. I don't care. You know, it's, reading is such a, you know, it's a personal journey that, you know, we all see the characters in our own way. So, I can't bother about that too much. I'm I'm happy people read it all. You mentioned uh, you have a lot of ideas uh, brewing, and I think that's one thing writers, uh, uh, it's a curse and a blessing in a way. Having a lot of ideas is great, but then there's always the shiny new idea, and you're like, oh, that's a shiny new idea. Let's let's fiddle with that for a while. Could you could you give us a, a sneak peek in, into your idea notebook, so to speak? Um, what are some ideas or... No, or, you're still my ideas. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can a little bit. I, I do what I do is I, I have that happen to me all the time. Like you know, especially in the middle of a series, the the book two of a series is where I start having strong urges to write something else. Not because I don't like it. <laughs> it's simply because it is becoming familiar. The character situations are becoming familiar to me. And I think my brain is constantly seeking something different. So I have to totally resist that temptation because I want to get the series finished in a timely fashion. I'm not George Martin. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I write notes. You know, if I have an idea for a character or a book or whatever it is, I, I write it down. I have a computer, you know, I'm a computer. I have several files about future projects. Um, I have oodles of scrap paper stuffed here and there about ideas. 99% of them I will not use because mostly what seems good at that moment a year later, when I reread what I wrote down, I'd be like, that's stupid, and throw it away. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the process is important because it keeps my brain active. And once in a while, you have a gem, you're like, hmm, that might have some legs. Let's that's, 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 that's explore that a little bit more. So I keep all my notes just in case, you know, you never know when a character that you didn't use for this book might have a good role in a future project. Or, you know, I keep actually you know, deleted scenes from my novels. You know, when you're revising a novel, there will be scenes you don't need. So like, like with a movie, you edit them out. I keep them in a separate file called deleted scenes. And because you never know when you're like writing something totally different and go, oh, my gosh, there was a scene in Shadow of Sun I deleted that would fit really great. So you go back and you read it again, take pieces out that, that might work, at least just the gist of it sometimes. So, you know, I don't. Thankfully, you know, in the old days when we were typing and everything, you'd have to have, you know, your entire basement would be filled with notes, you know, and, and 
crates. Now, in this age, thankfully, you know, I can keep all my notes from the last 20 years on one hard drive or two hard drives because I'm kind of anal about keeping it, you know. <laughs> so, but it's all right there. I just go through the files and find my notes again. So that's really been awesome. And uh, that's just how I do. I, as far as what ideas, uh, yeah, um, I always have one dream idea of writing the greatest fantasy novel ever. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm always tinkering with, you know, let's take this character from this great series and this situation from that great series and this setting from this one, I'm going to mash them all together and bit the biggest bestseller ever. And I never actually write it, but it's just <laughs> funny. I always have these notes like, oh yeah, I'm going to like include like an apocalypse now kind of vibe, you know, <laughs> well, the characters from Dragonlands, there'd be like a Conan character in there too. And you know, but it never goes anywhere. <laughs> Are you just, just planning the uh, fantasy for your future projects or any uh, inclinations to do sci-fi or horror or anything like that? Or are you just strictly fantasy guy? Well, I don't do it on purpose, but whenever I find myself going for my next idea, it always comes back to fantasy. I always play out the idea, well, I've written like one horror short story that was published a long time ago. And I think a lot of my fantasy has some horror elements, but you go with what you love, right? I'd rather write a book that I love that, but then go for, you know, try and, you know, get commercial fame artificially. So I, I just don't feel confident enough in my horror or sci-fi chops to write a full novel. I think what would happen would be I'd have to reinvent the wheel. I'd have to go back to my 20 years ago in my career, <laughs> write that really crappy, totally rip-off horror, you know, Stephen King horror rip-off, write 10 of those before I find my horror voice, and then start to get good. I'm like, I can't do that. That's too much work anymore, you know? I, I can't start right. over like that anymore, you know? <laughs> It's an interesting idea, but I think that, you know, I've been doing fantasy all my adult life, and it's what I go back to. It's what I want to read all the time. So as much as I love a good science fiction or horror story or even, you know, a mystery once in a while or something else, I, I just don't have the chops to do it professionally. And since, you know, I only have so many years on this planet, I don't, I don't want to spend <laughs> a decade of, of my last, you know, my remaining years, you know, experimenting with something that, that might never see any readership so that's kind of a maybe it's a mercenary sort of thing you know getting back to my mercenary roots but you know I, I i do want the gold coin at the end of the day for my efforts you know i'll kill who you want but please pay me back <laughs> as the old adage goes if it ain't broke don't fix it sort of maybe or something like so, that so so i had a shitty segue earlier but now I, but now i have a good segue uh speaking it. speaking of science fiction uh, judging from your interview with our past guest, Brian Thomas Schmidt, you're a huge fan of Star Wars and can talk about Star Wars at length and in great detail. <laughs> Probably um, too much detail. So I'm curious, what were your thoughts on the big blockbuster phenomenon, The Force Awakens? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Uh, first of all, Brian is a great guy. We've been Facebook friends for a long time. We actually did like a, uh, a Star Wars back and forth sort of uh, – <laughs> posting for a while um i loved it you know uh i was seven years old when uh, a new hope came out in theaters and i think i saw it 17 times that summer with my father wow <laughs> and you know at seven years old that's when i started you know appreciating the world as a bigger thing than myself blah 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 and that's where my writing actually begins that's where my love of storytelling begins with A New Hope. I, I saw that movie, and it really did change my life. And, and that's not an understatement. I would not be a writer today 
had I not seen that movie because it just blew my mind the story and the force and the the, the whole fantasy slash space opera thing. And uh, of course, you know, I, I followed all the movies. And when the prequels came out, I cried with the rest of most of the <laughs> fandom because I was horrified what Lucas was doing to our our cherished memories. And so <laughs> when Disney bought it, I was like, no, I'm not a big J.J. Abrams fan. I, I have not liked anything he's worked on. You know, new Star Treks, I think, are not that good. I didn't like Lost, any of that stuff. So I was like, oh, wonderful. J.J.'s going to ruin my last love. <laughs> um, so I had very low expectations. But in my heart, you know, I wanted to hope. So when I went to see the movie, the, the hype was getting big. I was like, okay, it's got some good reviews. I'll go see it, you know, and my wife and I saw it, and, and I, I loved it. It was what I've wanted for since the 80s. You know, it, wow. it was a total hearkening back to the first series, in, in, in my opinion. It brought back, you know, I didn't think they'd ever get Harrison Ford back. I mean, he was so adamant that he hated Han Solo <laughs> for so <laughs> yeah. many years. I was like, there's no way they're going to get him back. They probably won't get Carrie Fitt. They might get Mark Hamill because he was still doing voice acting for, you know, the Joker and stuff. He still has his foot in, um, you know, speculative fiction. You know, yeah. I thought he would, if nobody else would come back. But when I saw Harrison Ford came out, I thought, all right, let's find out. And I was so happy. They brought, they gave Han Solo a major piece of that first movie. He was in it so much, I was shocked I, that in, in, a, in a good way. And it was a really good, in my mind, passing the torch to the new generation. Like, this is what we went through before. Yes, yes. People will say, well, it was it was the same movie just reshot as yeah, I know, but they wanted to bring back all the elements you loved before they launched onto new things. And I appreciate that as a fan. I spent half the movie, you know, cheering and half wanting to cry. I dug it and I really liked the new characters as well. I think they really, really did a great job with uh, Daisy Ridley and uh, Boyega and uh, uh, what's the other Oscar? Yes, it's just my mind too. Sorry. I'm, I was Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, we'll go with that. We'll go with that, Oscar Wilde. You got Google there. And uh, I got a great story so, yeah. real briefly on that, on that movie. So I, I saw it by myself first because, you know, I, if it was horrible, I wanted to be by, by myself when I cried, but it wasn't. <laughs> so I, I saw it again that same uh, week later with my wife and my uh, mother-in-law and my son. He, he is seven, my son Logan, right now. And he's been on the verge of liking Star Wars, but, you know, not quite embracing it. So we took him to see it. And he really liked it. He was really good for it. But the spoiler alert for everybody who hasn't seen it yet. Sorry, it's been a month now. You still saw it by now. Um, at the end, when uh, Kylo Ren is fighting with Rey and uh, Finn, and when Rey strikes down Kylo, the, the theater is totally silent. And my son goes, no! <laughs> he loves the dark side so much. He oh, was nice. crushed. He said, I want the dark side to win this time. Was it like Darth Vader in the new... In the uh, in the uh, the third prequel, where he goes, no, exactly. Really and I bad. asked him afterwards. I said, "What was your favorite scene?" And he said, "When Han Solo died." I'm like, "You little, sh oh, little bastard!" <laughs> <laughs> I was trying not to cry in a theater as a grown man. And that's your favorite scene. I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna kill you." <laughs> uh, he does sounds the like dark little, side though. Like a little Logan Sprunk is a little uh, grim, dark author in the making. I think possible. Oh yeah, he's already decided he wants to take over the world and be the new emperor. So you guys should <laughs> nice. watch out. <laughs> Shoot for the stars. Yeah. It's, it's Oscar Isaac, by the way. Oscar, there you go. There you go. The, the, the actors were so good. I mean, look, in the prequels, like Natalie Portman is a really good actress. What yeah. kind of director can take a good actress like that and make her performance really bad? I don't know right. how that happens, but 
Yeah, less said than that, the, the better, probably. <laughs> poor. Well, you poor. are no, no doubt excessively knowledgeable in Star Wars, so we are going to have a special Star Wars 30-second geek out with our uh, guest, John Sprung. This is basically, we give you 30 seconds to wax eloquent on a subject, and you only get 30 seconds, and at 30 seconds, we will stop you, and we will go on to the next subject. Okay. <laughs> okay, topic number one. You have 30 seconds. Discuss episode one, The Phantom Menace. Skip. <laughs> oh, sorry. oh, all right. So I, I was a big fan of the original series, and I was so excited about the new one coming out. You know, the preview looks pretty good. So I go in with my friends and my wife, and we see it, and it opens up okay. You know, with these two Jedi talking about philosophy of the Force. I'm like, okay, I go with this. There's droids everywhere. They seem sort of shady, but I'm not sure why. They seem sort of stupid. And then uh, they try to kill a Jedi for no real reason. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then the Jedi are chopping up these droids, trying to get to the the Jamaican racist uh, alien race. And I'm like, oh, God, this is going down the toilet so fast. And I was really getting upset. And then, uh, of course, they introduced Darth Maul. Pretty cool. It was a little jarring, right? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you only get 30 seconds. So <laughs> It went fast. That was cool. Okay, number two will be fan favorite Boba Fett's future in the much-rumored prequel of... Uh, Boba, Boba Fett. Ready, go. Uh, no, Boba Fett is dead. We do not change what happens in the movies. That's Come on, you, you don't do that. I, I read the, the book about he comes back and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. He's dead. <laughs> and, Fred, and he died in such a stupid way. Anyway, he deserves to be dead. What, you kick on your jet, your jet pack and, you know, you fo- hit the side of the barge and fall and come in the pit? Come on. He deserves to be dead. I liked him in Empire Strikes Back, and Lucas totally castrated the character. Leave him dead. I'm cutting myself off. <laughs> That's enough of that subject. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, feel free to cut yourself off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm passionate about this. I, you, know, you guys should know what you're getting That's into. Cool. We like it. Okay, next one will be the next Star Wars movie, Rogue One. Go. Don't know much about it. I was never um, a huge collector of the extended universe comics. You know, I saw a few comics and I've read a few books. Um, so I'm not super knowledgeable about it. I guess it's based on the Rogue Squadron, which is a rebellion, the squadron of X-Wing fighters, pilots. I- I'll go with it. If it's Star Wars, I will always give it a chance. If it's a bad first movie, I hope that they, they won't keep the series going. But at worst, it, a bad Star Wars movie is usually better than most other movies anyway. So... I'll go along with the idea. Hopefully it centers around maybe the old movie era. If they're going to do the future, it's going to be kind of interesting how they balance the resistance versus the Republic and all that with the new stuff going on. But I'm open-minded right Okay. That was probably good. Yeah, that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next one. Jar Jar Binks is a Sith theory that is buzzing around the internet. Yeah, um, I've heard this maybe about a month before the movie came out. Uh, that supposedly, if you watch the movies, like whenever someone's talking, like Jar Jar's in the scene, like mouthing and not saying anything, like as if he's the <laughs> Sith Lord controlling their dialogue. I have no idea. Uh, this is silly. Jar Jar Binks was a horrible, 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 horrible idea. Um, Lucas should learn to less with, with the Ewoks about these stupid characters and super species that no one cares about. But he didn't learn his lesson. So, of course, he puts this guy front and center. I feel bad for the actor who did the, the, uh, the body acting for the character. I hear that he's a real nice guy. He got screwed over by Lucas, in my mind. Give the guy a real part to play. Don't let Jar Jar. Screw it. He's not a Sith Lord. He's just an idiot that shouldn't even be in the film for the first place. 
At thanks. Let the hate I'm... flow through you, John. <laughs> maybe he is Sith Lord because I feel so much hate and anger towards him that maybe he's controlling my thoughts right now. Yeah. <laughs> Jar Jar Binks is controlling all of us right now. Okay, very good. Okay, next one. Kylo Ren, emo or otherwise. You can talk about the real Kylo Ren or the Twitter phenomenon, emo Kylo Ren. Can I discuss the SNL skit where he's a rare technician undercover boss with my son is obsessed with that video? Uh, no, a bit of both. I love the character Kylo Ren. Here's why. Almost every story is going to ha- have the growth of, a, of the protagonist, the hero. But most stories, the, the villain is set in stone. He's a complete package from, day, from the start of the story, never grows. This is the opposite. We're going to actually see a villain go from being um, kind of ev- you know, evil, but emo, you know, whiny. And he's going to grow. You watch the next, next movie, he's going to go from this sort of whiny young man, man-child, and take this defeat and come back stronger. And he will become, I predict more ruthless than Darth Vader was and more impressive once he's fully realized. I'm very excited about this idea. Damn it, I go on that for <laughs> half an hour. Damn it. <laughs> okay, if you wrote a Star Wars film, what would you write? Oh, gosh. I would rewrite um, Empire Strikes Back. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not Empire. Uh, Return of the Jedi, my bad. The, the third movie in the original series. The third one had a lot of great elements. It could have been a great movie, but of course Lucas couldn't let someone else direct it he took the reins back and he ruined, you know, the ending of his of his saga. So I'd rewrite that, but not supposed to rewriting of it. I'd get a new director. And if I couldn't do that, I'd rewrite the prequels to actually make sense and be not so stupid and be actually cool. Because <laughs> why would you ruin Darth Vader's history? It just makes no sense. Castrate Lucas castrates all his characters eventually if you give him enough time. So I'm glad he's out of it. But um Actually, I'm very grateful to Lucas for creating Star Wars in the first place, but he should have stopped after Empire and just let someone else handle it. No, it's it's funny. Uh, Patton Oswalt has this great bit about Star Wars, and he's talking about, uh, hey, do you like Darth Vader? <laughs> and uh, the guy's like, oh, yeah, I love Darth Vader. He's so cool, you know, breathe, breathing, and, uh, you know, and he's got the dark side. Yeah, 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 that, he's really awesome. And then, oh, well, in this movie, you get to see him as a kid. <laughs> he's like, oh, Oh, that that doesn't sound that great. And then, what about Boba Fett? You you like him, right? Oh yeah, he's got the jetpack and the you know can shoot shoot the rockets out of his uh you know hands and stuff like that. Oh yeah, he's really cool. Oh well, in this movie, you get to see him as a kid. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he keeps doing that. There are great examples. I like you know I'm not the hugest Harry Potter fan, but I appreciate the the books and the movies how they handle young Voldemort in the later movies was awesome because they made him seem like a little psychopath that actually scared you. You didn't want him around your family at all. (laughs) That's how a young Vader should have been. Like, he should have scared the crap out of all the adults, even a Jedi. But no, he's like, oh, Annie, I love you. (laughs) Damn it, I hate them so much. (laughs) Get me pissed off. (laughs) Let's just talk briefly about future plans. When can maybe folks expect some more fiction from John Sprunk? Some Sprunk punk. (laughs) I like that. Um, Actually, it's interesting. I talked to my publisher a couple of weeks ago, um, as I touched on earlier, you know, unfortunately, having a new day job has cut into my writing, especially this summer. It really took the summer away from me. I am behind schedule. So I was supposed to submit the book three by the end of March. It's going to be probably nine to 12 months late. Uh, so there probably won't be anything 
on a book three this year. Hopefully I can get it done and they can release it 2017, but I couldn't even tell you what part of the year yet. Um, I'll try to keep everybody up to date on on the when and where, and I apologize for that. Uh, real life has intruded, unfortunately, but uh, it's going to be a, a little bit. It won't be the George Martin 10 to 15 years between <laughs> books, but I've been pretty good about every year, year and a half, if you get a new one. It's going to be probably closer to two, two and a half this time around. But I will Book three is going well right now. I will do that. I will do book four. I will finish the series. You have my word unless I drop dead of something. So you will <laughs> let's hope not. You will find completion eventually. Well, while while people are waiting, they could read all five of your novels in preparation for the next book. Over and so, over again and nothing else. Repeatedly. Exactly. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> and then where can folks find you online, John Sprunk? Uh www.johnsprunk.com is my website. I'm on Twitter, John Sprunk. And I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook uh, fiction page. You are all welcome to like. And I give updates fairly regularly about you know my writing's progress. And I, I do not clutter my fiction Facebook page with you know pictures of my breakfast or that kind of crap. It's 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 about the <laughs> writing or about fantasy <laughs> fiction in general. I try to keep it interesting. But John, so, uh, we want we want, want breakfast burritos on you. <laughs> you you will bench. not get them, sir, unless they cause me to go to the hospital and I will take a picture so you won't eat them also. Okay. <laughs> well, very cool, John Sprunk. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to uh, hang out and geek out with us and talk about fantasy and sword and sorcery and your cool books and Star Wars. This was a great conversation. Uh, definitely looking forward to letting folks know more about you and pick up your books, the Shadow Saga and the Book of the Black Earth series. And uh, just thanks again for hanging out, man. It's been great chatting with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really wonderful talking to you guys. And uh, thank you to your audience for listening. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. You can download the show on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you like the show, please share it and leave a review. Until next time, on behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. I don't want to do podcasting.